which we began this series. Ready? We're going to put that up on the screen for you here. Here's that summary. When Jesus carried out the work of ministry, His work was to both call and conform individuals to Himself. When Jesus carried out the work of ministry, as we've been looking at in Mark 1 and Mark 3 last time, His work was to both call and conform individuals to Himself. He was calling people to Himself. He was conforming people to Himself. Or we might say that He both drew in and built up. He drew in and He built up. People were redeemed and remade. He offered belonging, but He also offered becoming. Or as later writers in the New Testament might express this idea, men and women were justified and sanctified. Justified and sanctified. Remember the work of ministry is one way, that phrase, the work of ministry, is one way to describe why Jesus came into our world. The message that He announced, the change He prescribed, the hope He offered, the teaching and the time He gave to His disciples, all of it was ultimately and eternally empowered by His death and resurrection. We can look at His death and resurrection, right? And we can isolate those things, but we shouldn't. Some traditions do. They actually isolate the death and resurrection and they spend so much time focused on the benefits we derive in terms of eternity on that death and resurrection They forget the bigger picture of how his death and resurrection was the fullness of his ministry and how those things functioned in order to bring about the reality of what he was doing three and a half years as he ministered in both southern and northern Israel. Eternally and ultimately empowered by his death and resurrection. So why emphasize this fact That Jesus' work was to both call and conform. Well, because the work of ministry, this disciple-making work, continues today with both of these aspects. These two aspects, inside and outside the church. So this morning, what I'd like to do is focus on that second aspect. The second aspect of the work of ministry. But thinking about that, we might ask, how does the church help those called to Christ? There's the first aspect of what Jesus was doing. How does the church help those who are called to Christ become conformed to Christ? How does the church do that? Let me suggest that the most common approach, the one that if I were to do a survey of churches all throughout our country and maybe even around the world, if I were to do a survey of that, the most common model uh, that's used within the church is this idea of, hold, hold on a minute, the most common approach for doing this looks back to what Jesus did with the twelve and builds on the reality that some were appointed. So if I looked around at the world and I saw what churches were doing in terms of helping people become conformed to Christ, what the model would be built on, that common approach would be built on, is this idea, as we saw last time in Mark chapter 3, that Jesus appointed some. 
You remember that? Those men went on to become apostles. They were called apostles. So this idea that Jesus appointed some. Now, we know that this idea of appointment is is something we see throughout Scripture. We know the Son, for example, was appointed by the Father to do the work of ministry. He was sent by the Father into the world. That He, in turn, appointed these men to do the work of ministry. We saw that. Furthermore, they would also go, go on to appoint others, evangelists, elders, right? We see that in the book of Acts. We can see them appointing others. Now, in this common model, those within the church who are appointed for the work of ministry are, in general, appointed to minister to the spiritual needs of non-appointed within the church, that make sense those who are appointed within the church this common model are appointed to minister to the spiritual needs of those who are not appointed within the church the non-appointed we'll call them so in general um, well in turn those non-appointed within the church tackle all sorts of other important god-glorifying practical needs Things like setting up chairs, passing out bulletins, caring for babies, providing meals, offering hospitality, and all of this in addition to faithful attendance and participation, prayer, um, financial support. And this is often the paradigm through which spiritual gifts are understood. The appointed, the appointed are gifted to do these kinds of things while the non-appointed are gifted to do these other kinds of things. Does that make sense? The appointed are gifted to do these things. The non-appointed are gifted to do these other kinds of things. But again, in this model, this common approach, in general, when it comes to the work of ministry in which Jesus himself engaged, the appointed, those appointed, are those who give while the non-appointed receive. And that, of course, brings us to a really clear-cut and critical question. Is this appointed slash non-appointed model supported by Scripture? The answer is yes and no. Yes and no. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 4. If you've got your Bibles open there or your device open, navigate to Ephesians 4. We're looking at verses 11 through 16. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. Listen here. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes God's model. God's model for continuing the work that Jesus Christ began. Here it is. And he, that is Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. He gave them to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Or literally in Greek, just building the body of Christ. Building the body of Christ. Until we all attain, all of us, attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God 
to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Notice he's saying what he's saying here. Until we all attain, it's attainable. This is attainable in this life. Whatever he's talking about here is attainable. How do we know that? Look at the next verse. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, that is, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Okay, so... The first thing that we really need to establish after looking at that, and there's a lot there, I know that, when we look at Ephesians 4 and those verses, really dense, really thick with details. The first thing that we need to establish, though, is that the work of ministry mentioned explicitly here, did you see it? Verse 12. Verse 12. That is that work of ministry mentioned here, does that correspond to what Jesus was doing? Is it something different or is it the same thing that Jesus was doing? Well, the clearest confirmation of that correspondence is found in verse 13, where the work of ministry is specifically described as resulting in what? Christ-like maturity. You see that? Christ-like maturity. No longer children, but we are to mature. To a mature man, as he writes here. So, the work of ministry resulting in Christ like maturity, isn't that what discipleship is? Isn't that the goal of disciple making? Yes, no. Yes, no. Yeah, that you would become like your teacher, conformity to your, the image of your teacher. Isn't this what this is saying? That we would become more and more like Christ. We're maturing and we're maturing in a way that's measured according to who Christ is. That growth. That's the same idea here. That's what Jesus was doing with his first disciples during his earthly ministry. Jesus' work was to both call and conform those disciples to himself. They were to become like him. Now, the second thing... Sorry, the first one you're going to see there. Let's put that up so we can look at it. This work of ministry is the very work Jesus was doing. That's that first kind of observation here. We don't want to see these as two separate things. They're really the same thing. What Jesus is doing and what Paul is prescribing here in Ephesians 4. Take a look at a second point here. This work of ministry gives special roles to some. That's the second thing that we should acknowledge about this passage that in this passage, this passage just confirmed that truly there are those who are appointed by Christ for a special role in the work of ministry. We see that very clearly here. The offices are listed in verse 11. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherds. That's where our word pastor comes from. means shepherd. And teachers. But the construction there in Greek can also be taken as shepherd teachers. Pastor teachers. 
right, combined, just two sides of the same, two words to describe really the same office. We would call that elder. We'd also call that an elder uh, or an overseer. So those offices are there. It's clear. It's clear from the context in many, many other places in the New Testament that these roles, or we could call them offices, are vital to the continuation of the work that Jesus began and empowered through his finished work. Why else would he appoint apostles? Right? Why would he designate those? They weren't his only disciples. They were disciples, but he appointed some for a specific role. We see that throughout the church, don't we? We see that throughout the rest of the New Testament. Now, building on those first two points, let me share another point with you here. What may be surprising to some is the fact that third, number three, these special appointments are not described here as carrying out the work of ministry. Those special offices are not said to be carrying out the work of ministry, although I think that they are. But as we clearly read in verse 12, these offices simply equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's what they do. That's their job. I don't know what your pastor, your expectations of a pastor are, but they need to align with this. This is what describes the function of something like a pastor teacher. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, if we went back to chapter 1, verse 1 of this letter, and we kept reading forward, it would be obvious to us that the word saint, which means holy one, that's used nine times in this letter, that it refers to every single believer in Christ. Every disciple is a saint, is a holy one. Contrary to Roman Catholic usage, right? That, that's, that's not grounded in Scripture. What the Scriptures teach is that every believer is a saint. Talking about the whole church here. So the work of ministry is not simply the non-appointed receiving from the appointed. No, the non-appointed receive from the appointed in order to carry out the work of ministry. In order to do the work of ministry themselves so in light of this passage i think it's right to say that every part of the body of christ has been appointed for the work of ministry do you believe that every part every individual who is truly belo- who truly belongs to christ has been appointed for the work of ministry. If that's not true, then what does the priesthood of every believer actually mean in Scripture? 1 Peter chapter 2, Revelation chapter 5. 1 Peter 2, Revelation chapter 5 talks about how we have all been made priests of our God. Every believer is a priest. One of the ideas captured in the Reformation, regained and kind of thought about, is this idea. Probably not taken far enough, though, uh, given the way they understood the church in those days. We need to keep pressing forward, don't we, and really expanding that out and understanding what does it mean that we are priests? It's this idea here that the non-appointed receive from the appointed in order to carry out the work of ministry themselves. Specifically in this passage, they have, we have all been appointed to help one another spiritually mature, that is, to become more and more like Jesus. 
So does this passage support the idea of what's called a clergy-laity distinction? Yes. But it's far, far less distinct than centuries of church history have led us to believe. Far less distinct. It's more accurate to say, based on the word, that the New Testament's clergy-laity distinction is meant to highlight a fundamental clergy-laity dynamic. That's what we should be talking about, is clergy-laity dynamic. The way those things energize one another, how they fit together. Can we find that dynamic in other passages? Absolutely. For example, flip forward in your Bible to Colossians chapter 1. Go over to Colossians chapter 1. Two books over. Now, though Paul, in his letters, never uses the language of discipleship or disciple-making, kind of an interesting point that you can kind of think about, that the word disciple never appears in the New Testament after the book of Acts. But the concepts are all there. Right? We've already seen that in this idea of maturity and the growing of a child to a mature man. That's how Paul often thinks about this. And you're going to see that again right here in Colossians chapter 1. Though he never uses the language of discipleship or disciple making, it's clear that in verse 28 he's talking about that same calling and conforming mission that Jesus was about. That Jesus entrusted to his followers. Look at what he says in 128. Him we proclaim... Christ we proclaim, Him we proclaim, warning, literally admonishing everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now that sounds like a very good apostolic mission statement, doesn't it? That's what Paul should be doing as an apostle. Absolutely, he should be out there proclaiming and he should be out there teaching and admonishing people that they would become mature in Christ, in all wisdom. But, look two chapters, go forward two chapters to chapter 3, verse 16, Colossians 3, 16. Listen to how Paul instructs these saints in Colossians 3, 16. Keeping 128 in mind. This is the language he uses. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. That's Paul talking to every person in the Colossian church, in the church at Colossae. He's saying to them, I told you what I was about, which was right, proclaiming him and admonishing and teaching in all wisdom to present every person mature in Christ. You need to take that word that I proclaimed and you need to let it dwell in you richly. And then as a result of that, what should you do with that word dwelling in you richly? You should teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. Isn't that striking? He's using the exact same language that he used for himself in his own ministry in chapter 1. And he's turning around and saying, that is your job as well. That is your work as well. That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Because he just said in Ephesians 4 that people like him who have these special offices within the church, right, are not just the givers and you're the receivers. No, they're the equippers. They're the equippers. 
And that those within the church give, give to one another in these same ways, teaching, admonishing one another with the word, just like Paul. Now, those verses from Colossians 128 and 316 also confirm what our main text in Ephesians makes clear that number four, the work of ministry is a word centered ministry. If we don't grasp this idea, all is, is kind of lost for us in, in establishing really any biblical vision. You have to grasp this idea that this is a word-centered ministry. As I said before, meeting practical needs within the church. And we all know what those practical needs within the church. You're sitting on chairs, right? Room is cooled, right? You can hear me through the sound system over here. There's all sorts of practical needs. They're just regular things that come along with any church that you, you're a part of. Practical needs. Those kinds of needs, along with things like mercy ministry, benevolent ministry, those are important, critical, God-glorifying avenues of service. They can and they should support and they should complement and they should beautify and they should be vehicles for the work of ministry, but they are not the work of ministry. Those things are not the work of ministry. And our confusion on this issue has led to a weaker church. They are not the work of ministry. The work of ministry is the ministry of God's Word through every disciple of Jesus. The ministry of God's Word through every disciple of Jesus. Remember the language in Colossians. Proclaim. Teach, teach, teaching, warning or admonishing. And in our main text here, in Ephesians chapter 4, our main passage, those are summed up in verse 15 of this passage, this chapter, simply as this phrase, speaking the truth in love. There it is. Paul has wonderfully brought together these ideas of word-centered ministry, and he has put it and compacted it in a beautiful little phrase. Speaking the truth in love. When you combine that phrase with the imagery, look at the imagery here in verses 15 and 16 of Ephesians 4, the imagery of lives linked together like parts of a human body. You know what? I can't think of a better phrase, speaking the truth in love, I can't think of a better phrase to describe what Jesus himself was doing when he labored relationally to both call individuals to himself and conform individuals to himself. We saw last time that he did that relationally, didn't he? Yeah, there were times where he's addressing large groups, but then he'd break it down, right? And then he'd break it down again smaller and 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 the and the deeper it went relationship relationally required a smaller circle didn't it and this imagery just beautifully complements that idea speaking the truth in love how lives linked together like interdependent parts of a human body this is the same concept again the glowing center of this truth that we are called to speak in love the glowing center of that truth 
is the word that Paul proclaimed in Colossians 1.28. Him we proclaim. It's the word which was to dwell richly in the Colossian believers. Or as Paul has already reminded us in Ephesians 1.13. Take a look here on the screen. Ephesians 1.13. Oh, there it is. This is from before. Colossians proclaiming, teaching, warning. Ephesians speaking the truth in love. Same ideas of word-centered ministry. But look at Ephesians chapter 1. He's already told them this when he talked about the truth. When they heard him say, hey, speaking the truth in love, what did they think about what truth meant there? He's already talked about the word of truth, which is the gospel of your salvation. The gospel of your salvation. So we might ask at this point, if this word-centered work of ministry doesn't belong to just a special group within the church, but to the whole church, to every disciple, then how exactly are the saints equipped for the work of ministry? How is it that you're equipped for the work of ministry? Well, notice that every office listed in verse 11 is said to equip the saints for the work of ministry. We often just take the last ones because they're relevant to us. Like, well, we don't have apostles and prophets and uh, necessarily evangelists in the church here. So, but, but all of these offices are said to equip the church. They're all said to equip the church. Well, how do they do that? Well, look back at 2.20. You can look back there. I'll put it on the screen too, just for those at home. Take a look. This is 19 and 20. But when you look back at chapter 2, verse 20, that verse is really helpful in reminding us that the apostles and the prophets equipped the church like, a fa- like the foundation of a building. That's how they equipped the church. Like the foundation of a building built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. I think that's another reminder that those offices have served their function. They no longer exist. Right? They don't exist in this way. Is there apostolic work or prophetic work with a little a, little p? Probably still today. Yeah, those functions. But these offices were the foundation of the church. They don't continue to exist. But... They serve that foundational function. How were they foundational? Because as we know what apostles are, we know they bore firsthand witness to the risen Jesus. To be an apostle, you had to have seen the risen Jesus. Right? And appointed by him because you were a a, a witness of that. And the evangelists, how were they? How are they equipping the church? Well, they took that witness and that word far and wide as they proclaimed the good news. And what about the shepherd teachers, the pastor teachers? Well, what do they do? They help those who believe grow in their knowledge and application of that very gospel, which was witnessed to by the apostles and brought by the evangelists. You see the progression there of those, those titles there? How they actually equip even us today? So not surprisingly, God's people are equipped by faithful pastor teachers with that gospel-informed word of God in order that they might minister in love with that same word. Remember the question, how are you equipped? Well, through the word-centered ministry of those appointed. For what? What are you equipped for? Word-centered ministry. That's why I would say that those appointed also do the work of ministry. It's just my unique calling, for example, the calling of Elder Christian, Elder Steve, is to equip you with the word so that you can serve with the word. 
to empower your word-centered ministry personally. Now again, go back. Is that what Ephesians 4 is saying? Go back and look over the text and say, is that, are we really accurately drawing out of this? Because this does challenge us. This does challenge us. Because when we look around today, if we were to stop and look around today, have the saints been equipped? Has the church, has our church been unleashed to be what God designed her to be? Is the work of ministry squarely in the hands of God's people? All of God's people. All of you. Every single person who calls on the name of Christ. Is the work of ministry squarely in your hands? Is every believer engaged in deliberate word-centered ministry? A ministry of personal disciple-making. Does every disciple understand their calling in this way to be like Jesus in this way and to take their cues from how Jesus himself made disciples because we are his disciples? We look to him and we learn from him what we should be doing, what we are giving our lives to, what we abandon all to make first priority in this world like those first disciples who left those nets, who left those boats, who left even their father sitting there probably scratching his head. Or do we still lean today toward that appointed slash non-appointed approach? Which is really an active slash passive model. Some are active, some are passive. Some give, some receive. Do we still think and talk and walk as if word-centered, disciple-making ministry was something only the gifted do. Now, are some gifted as teachers and evangelists? Yes, absolutely. But as with every gift, the gifted among us are meant to inspire and lead us as we participate in the work of ministry. Because I know that you wouldn't say to me, well, somebody has the gift of mercy. That's good. Whew. Thankfully now, I don't have to do mercy. I don't have to be merciful to anyone because that person has the gift of mercy. Well, you're not being very merciful to me. Well, that's just not my gift, brother, sister. I'm so sorry. It's just not my gift. Well, let's not do that with teaching and evangelism. Right? Let's not do that. Because that's not what the gifts are for. They don't give us a hall pass to some of us who say, well, I I don't need to be involved in the work of ministry, (laughs) right? I'm good setting up the chairs. It's fine. Is that a word-centered ministry? It's not. Can it be a word-centered ministry? Absolutely. If you're setting up chairs with a brother or sister some Saturday night or Sunday morning early and you're putting them out here, you can use that as an opportunity to minister the word to that brother or sister. The question is, will you Do you have a disciple maker's heart? And what is a disciple maker's heart? It's the heart of Jesus. Because that's what he was doing. Just look at him, what he was doing. You read the Gospels. That's what he was doing. You see, when I say disciple making, right, I know for a fact that many saints 
have a hard time believing they can personally make disciples, mainly because they understand disciple-making to be something so highly specialized and just practically beyond them that it just doesn't make any sense when they see themselves to be thought of or talked about in that role. But I would ask you to rethink the issue, if you're struggling with that, in light of this definition. This is what disciple-making is. Disciple-making is spiritually investing in others with an eye toward their wholeness in Christ. That's all it is. Isn't this what Jesus was doing when he ministered? Wasn't he spiritually investing in other people with an eye toward their wholeness in him? Didn't he walk, talk, right? This all the time? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. What is he doing? He's spiritually, he's calling people to himself. He's spiritually investing in people. He wants them to find rest in him. What was Paul doing? Him we proclaim. Him we proclaim. Yeah, teaching and admonishing one another that we might present every person mature or complete in Christ. He's doing the same thing. And we're called to do the very same thing. Thing, this kind of disciple making, spiritually investing in others with an eye toward their wholeness in Christ. Isn't that what we see here in Ephesians chapter 4? When you consider the context here of this whole passage, verses 11 through 16, isn't that what speaking the truth in love really means? Isn't that what all of us need, both receiving and making this kind of spiritual investment? I know that I need that. Spiritually receiving and making this kind of spiritual investment. Imagine what would happen in and through a church in which every single believer is on fire to be a blessing and is being blessed in precisely these kinds of ways. We know what would happen. It's right here in the text. Church growth. Right? You see in verse 15? Church growth. Is that where it is? Or is it verse 16? Uh, yeah, verse 16 at the very end, the very last phrase. What does it say? The body grows so that it builds itself up in love. That's how a church grows. Is that, wait a minute, is that like spiritual or numerical? I think it's both of those things. But clearly in the New Testament, the emphasis is always on the spiritual. It's not really on the numerical. Although that should, be a, that should be something that flows from that. Can you imagine that kind of church, brothers and sisters? So if we stop there and we, we, we try to take this in, and it's a lot, how do we move in this direction? Right? If we need to actually kind of recorrect ourselves based on kind of church traditions and other things that we're used to, how do we recalibrate and recorrect things in terms of this understanding of the work of ministry. Well, the first thing that we do is we pray. We pray. Let me suggest two vision-infused prayers for you, okay? And I would, just, I would just ask you, would you pray about these today and this week? Each day, would you pray about these? You can alternate them. You can mention them in your prayers, both, day, both, uh, both of them each day. But would you please pray about these? 
first of all, here's the first prayer request. Pray specifically for the wisdom, the heart, the focus, and the perseverance of our leaders that we would grow as equippers. That we would grow as equippers. The wisdom, the heart, the focus, and the perseverance of our leaders that we would grow as equippers. We are so grateful for your prayers in that way. Second, pray for your heart and the hearts of God's people that this biblical vision would be fully embraced and each disciple would be eager to learn and practice this kind of spiritual investing. Pray for your heart. Pray for the hearts of your brothers and sisters that we would be a church that would embrace this idea as biblical and that we would be eager to learn it, to practice this kind of spiritual investing. And underneath all of these prayers, both the first and second prayer, underneath both of these prayers, pray that we would, above all, treasure Jesus. Pray that we would treasure Jesus. That our vision of Him would be renewed. That we would daily marinate in the beauty of His gospel, that we would daily strive to hear His voice more clearly. And as we do that, as we treasure Jesus, as we marinate in in the gospel each day, as we look to Him, as we listen to Him, as we do that, may our motivation for this ministry, for the work of ministry, always be to please Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. That's what should be empowering us. Without that, the work of ministry distorts, right? It distorts into nothing more than a religious burden that somebody's putting on you, or it distorts into some kind of merit-earning ladder up to God. No. When we disciple others as daily disciples of Jesus Himself, we receive from Him what others need from us. When you disciple as a daily disciple of Jesus, treasuring Him, focused on Him, you receive from Him what others need from you. Your word-centered ministry is empowered. We are being conformed to our Lord as we focus on Him. His disciple-making work in us is continuing. We find strength in our weakness when we treasure Jesus. And we are setting before our eyes of faith that glorious picture of true spiritual maturity based on, verse 13, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So pray for those of us who are leaders and pray for yourself, brothers and sisters, that the spiritual investment of Jesus Christ in our lives, right? He did this with us. He has spiritually invested in your life if you truly belong to Him. He called you and is conforming you even now. And He empowered it by giving Himself on the cross and defeating death triumphantly to the glory of God for us. He did these things, Lord. He did these things to spiritually invest in us. So, so, Pray that the spiritual investment of Christ in our lives would be so rich 
that any fear or anxiety or distraction or selfishness in us would be eclipsed by a deep, deep desire to honor Him and become like Him in every way. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.